Hey, my name is Ryan McVitie, and I am the pastor of the River Worship. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. If you haven't heard about the river yet, it's an amazing move of God happening in the greater Toronto area. Yes, Toronto, Canada. It's a cold place, but we have warm hearts, and we love coming together every Tuesday night and worshiping the Lord with all we've got. We also get to dive into the Word, and that's where we're going to go right now. We're going to dive into the Word of God, and I trust and pray that it will impact you in a powerful way. If you're ever in the Toronto area, come visit us. We would love for you to worship with us together. But enjoy the message, and God bless you. So I want to share with you what my New Year's resolution was, but why don't you tell me a few of yours? What were yours? New Year's resolutions. Come on. This is interactive preaching, y'all. It makes it so you can't play Tetris. Come on. What were your New Year's resolutions? What was it? Discipline. That's a good one. What else? Come on. Wow. Okay, those are some weird ones, so I'm just going to tell you mine. Um, Mine might sound shallow on the surface coming from a pastor, but you ready for it? I want to win. I want to win in 2023. Anybody else want to win? You're like, where is he going with this? This sounds so shallow. Look, um, I don't know about you, but I want to win some battles in my life this year that matter. Yeah, I want to win some battles of eternal significance this year, y'all. I don't want to just get more fit and more healthy. That's important. you got to have that. Don't get me wrong. I want to win some things that matter. I want to break some stagnation in my life from 2022. I want to see new rivers flowing. I want to win this year. Now, I promise you this message is not going to be what you think it's going to be. But before I tell you what it is, I should confess some things. I have many, many flaws. And one of them is very, very serious. You ready for it? I really hate to lose. I mean, I, I hate losing. I am a sore loser through and through. Where are my sore losers at in the room? Put your hands up right now. Yeah, that's right. Getting, uh, that's right. Getting past denial is the first stage to recovery. So put them up right now if you're a sore loser too. All right, if you came with someone tonight, i.e. your spouse who's a sore loser, and they didn't put their hand up, put it up for them. Let me see. <laughs> that was more than I expected. That's really bad. Wow. Um, I'm a sore loser. I hate losing. I hate it. And to be honest with you, it's not entirely my fault. This is where I make excuses. Um, I got it honest from my dad. And uh, he's here tonight, right here. Give it up for my dad. He was, he was a great hockey player. In fact, it's very embarrassing when you play house league hockey and your 50-year-old dad with a belly gets picked over you and you're 20. That happened to me a lot. He was a great, great hockey player. But he, too, has a problem with losing, very much so. And I played high school basketball with my five foot eleven physique, you know, which qualified me to be an excellent bench warmer. Um, great leadership qualities, I was told I had. And uh, I played high school basketball at a small little high school. And my dad wasn't the coach, but he came in to speak to us one day. And you got to understand about my dad. He's, he's a pastor. He's a preacher. He's the president here of Canada Christian College now. He's a fourth-generation preacher, which makes me a fifth-generation preacher. It's crazy to think. It's like 200 years of preaching. Um, if you know my story, you know I did not want to be a preacher. But anyways basketball game he comes in pep talk we're expecting to you know hear some holy spirit and it's about playing with character and it's not if you win or if it's you or you lose it's how you play the game 
So he starts off and he says, guys, boys, just remember, winning isn't everything. Okay, yeah, pastor talk, that's good, that's good. He says it's the only thing. So you go out there right now and you win that game and you don't come back here a bunch of losers. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, dad, you're a pastor? So I got it honest. I got it honest from him. And, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this. So I know I recognize that flaw in me. So I thought I would go out as a young single man and find a good wife, which I found, an amazing wife. She's actually right here. And yeah, give it up for Lindsay. And, and I was like, you know, I'm going to find a woman who doesn't care about winning, who just cares about playing it right and doing good. And she's going to balance me out. And it's going to be great. This beautiful, smart kind woman of God is a worse loser than I am. I mean, yo, on our honeymoon in the Caribbean, we played Monopoly on the beach and got in fights over Monopoly. Friendships have severed over a game of Settlers of Catan. You know what game I'm talking about? Yeah, friendships, you want one brick from this woman, she wants like 10 pieces of wood or 10 stone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. The point is she's amazing, but she's also a sore loser. So it's a flaw. I know. I know that. I know that. Um, I'm praying for our son. We have an eight-month baby named Maverick. Uh, put him up on the screen. Give him the Mav update. Look at that little G right there with his backwards hat in the restaurants. What else you got for us about Mav? Hey, party animal, midnight, New Year's Eve. I don't know another newborn that stays up till midnight. But uh, the, the photo evidence is right there, 12 a.m. Um, that's our beautiful boy. So pray for him because soccer practice is just going to be rough with a couple parents like us. So keep Maverick in your prayers. But getting serious now, in 2023, I don't want to just win another board game. I don't want to win another pickup soccer game that I love to play, another pickup hockey game. That's not the type of wins that I'm going for this year. Like I said before, I want wins that have eternal significance. Like I want to win like finding a way to treat people better to love people like I should. I want a win that is something like winning souls for the kingdom of heaven. You know what I'm saying? Those are the types of wins that I want in 2023. If you want those types of wins, put your hand up right now. Is that you? Yeah, the rest of you we're praying for. That's cool. Look, now that I know y'all want to win too, the question we have to ask tonight is how. How do you do it? And I'm probably going to go a completely different direction than you thought because this sermon is not an I can do it kind of sermon, y'all. This sermon is not where you're going to get seven steps to a better you. This sermon is not where you're going to find ways to win favor with people or optimize a sleep REM cycle or go on a keto carnivore diet or buy Bitcoin. All right? This, that's, not, that's not what this is going to be, so I hope I don't disappoint you. What this sermon tonight is going to be is a I can't do it kind of sermon. And you know what? You can't do it either. What? Get Tiffany back up here. What's this bro talking about? I can't do it? That's that's what I'm hearing at church? That's right. I can't do it, and you can't do it. But you know what? I know somebody who absolutely can do it. I know somebody that can beat any chain. I know somebody that can defeat depression in a minute. I know somebody that can take away anxiety. I know someone with an undefeated record, 999,000 and oh, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you know him too, clap your hands for him tonight. That's right. So what I want to tell you tonight is that if you also want to win, If you also want to win, 
It's not about you, it's about him. It's football season right now, it's the playoffs. Go Buffalo Bills, any Bills fans in the house? All right, <laughs> what's that? Cowboys, oh, disgusting. Please don't come back next week. Um, just kidding, please do. Um, I love football, I love the Buffalo Bills, but you know something interesting about football? You don't have to be the quarterback to win the Super Bowl. There is a quarterback who wins the Super Bowl, but you don't have to be the quarterback. In fact, I was doing some research. There is this dude who played for the New England Patriots in the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, oh, yuck, era. Um, I'm a Bills fan, remember? He's sitting at home right now, probably on a lazy chair, looking at his three Super Bowl rings right now. This guy never stepped on the field once. He didn't even have to go to battle. He didn't play a single game, but he's sitting at home looking at three Super Bowl rings right now. There are football players like Dan Marino and other great quarterbacks who never won a Super Bowl. Great careers never won. But then there's this guy, and that got me thinking, maybe if you want to win, it's not so much about the player. It's more about the team. You know what I'm saying? It's not so much about the player. It's more about getting on the right team. But today, we focus so much on ourselves, creating a better me, self-help, self-improvement, getting better at this rhythm and getting better at this habit. And those things aren't bad. I do those things too. But I wonder what would happen if we would shift our focus off of the player and onto the team. Because maybe then we could get a W if we were truly all in on God's team. And you know how much that type of thinking takes pressure off of yourself? Because you've been walking around life thinking that you've got to win the championship all by yourself. And it's not because there's anything wrong with you. I do the same thing. I think I've got to get better. I've got to get stronger. I need to become more great. But that's not actually what it's about at all. It's that he needs to become more great. That's what it's truly about. And that takes so much pressure off your life. Let me give you an analogy. The best basketball player right now, LeBron James maybe? Any LeBron fans? Personally, I'm a Steph Curry kind of guy. I'm just going to offend a lot of people tonight. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, The best basketball player in the world, say it's LeBron James, would lose every single time against a subpar high school basketball team if he was playing by himself. Five snotty-nosed high school kids could destroy him. Because it's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And life is no different. It's not an individual sport. But today, the focus is all on you. It's all on ourselves. It's all on becoming better. So would you look to your neighbor right now? Wait. If you come to the river, you know my... Don't look. Look at me. Choose the one whom you love. I'm watching. Come on. Choose the one whom you love. Choose them. Choose them. Tiffany and Mate looked at each other so quick. Choose the one whom you love. And I hope they love you too for what you're about to say to them. You ready? Say, it's not about you. Nope. Not good enough. Say it again. It's not about you. Okay. I know a few married people in here that got very excited about saying that. They said it with a little bit too much enthusiasm. I saw you. I saw you. Now look to your second choice, the one whom you apparently love a little bit less. Go to them. It's all good. Still love them. Say it's about the team. 
It's about the team. Good, you're preaching, you're preaching tonight. That is the title of the message that I am bringing to you tonight. It's about the team, it's not about the player. You were not made to win this life alone. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I do not know how you get through this life because I could not get through this life on my own. I just couldn't. There's no way I could do it. I don't think it's possible. The battle is not yours alone. And I think even as Christians today, out of well-meaning intent, wanting to improve and wanting to be better, we so often keep too many battles all to ourselves. There are people, though, that you can trust. But more importantly than that, there is a God who is in your corner and who is involved in every single battle if you will let him fight it for you. So look, I told you I want to win battles this year. You said you want to win battles this year. The real question then is this. How do I get on the right team? That dude won three rings just from being on the right team. How do I get on the right team? What are the type of people that God uses for his purposes that he puts on his teams to get his will done? What does he look for? How do I get on his team? That's what I want to talk about tonight. And you're like, cool, pastor. I'm down with that. Tell me. Glad you asked. Okay. Sometimes I like to just preach to myself. I'm going to tell you. Okay. I'm going to tell you how. And it's not going to be my advice because my advice is worth a dollar on the best, way, best day of the week. Okay, We're going to look to the word of God. We are going to look at the most B.A. special forces team ever established in the Bible. Some of y'all were looking at me like, did he just say B.A. special? Blessed and assured. The most blessed and assured special forces team ever in the Bible It is called Gideon's 300. Who's heard of Gideon's 300? Anybody? Yeah. This is a special forces team selected by God. Gerard Butler was not on that team. Some of you laugh and need to go to church more. Me too. This is not that type of team. In fact, this team actually ended up really not even needing to do any killing, which we'll get to in a minute. But what I want to talk to you about is how God chose the 300. Because it's a crazy selection process, and my entire life it seems so weird to me. And before you say that's blasphemy, you know what? Sometimes the ways of God can seem very, very weird to you. You know why? Because Isaiah 55 says that his ways are higher than the heavens are above the earth. My mind is like an ant compared to the mind of God. So sometimes it seems weird to me, and i got to pray about it, and i got to study about it. So that's what I did. And we're going to go today to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 7. But before the scripture comes up, I need to give you some context about what's taking place in the seventh chapter here. The time of Judges was a 400-year period for Israel. Um, God has miraculously freed them under Moses out of slavery and bondage in Egypt where they spent 400 years there. And he has taken them into the promised land under the leadership of a man named Joshua, a man of great faith. And now there's this period called the Judges. It lasts for 400 years and it will end with the reign of Saul and then David after him. And there is a judge named Gideon. And he's not a judge with a gavel or a judge in a court. He's actually a military commander ultimately. Okay, that's where we are. And it's smack dab in the middle of that 400-year timeline. This man named Gideon. And, and he's, there's really nothing special about him until something very special happens to him. Earlier in the book of Judges, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And the angel of the Lord says something crazy to him. He says, 
He says, Gideon, you are going to lead the entire Israelite army and defeat their biggest enemy, the Midianites. And Gideon does exactly what Ryan McVitie would do. You know what he does? He looks in that broken mirror and he says, me? God, you got it wrong. There's no way it can be me. It's got to be somebody else. I know it has happened in your life where God has called you to do something and you go, God, you got it wrong. It wasn't me. That's somebody else. That's her. She's more holy. That's him. He's more capable. But no, God was choosing you and he was calling you. And Gideon says to the angel of the Lord in response, he says, he says, God, you got it wrong. I come from the least of the houses of Israel. The house I come from is the least. And even in that house, I am the least of my father's sons. Why would you pick me? Right? This is before David. He hasn't heard David's story yet. Very similar. Right? He says, why would you pick me, God? And he doubts the angel of the Lord's word, and he doubts God, but God is gracious with him through his doubting and his fears, and he brings miracle after miracle to confirm to Gideon that, no, this is my commandment for you, and this is what you're going to do. So he ultimately agrees, and he commands a big army, an army of 32,000 soldiers. That's a big army. Look around this room right now. That's like 2,000 people in this room right now. That's about that size. Imagine 32,000 soldiers. That's a big responsibility and a big army until you hear about the size of the enemy's army, the Midianites that he's called to fight. The, the Bible describes the size of their army as as much sand as that is on the seashore. The amount of camels they have, the Bible says, is as thick as locusts. That you can't even count it, although one biblical scholar through study has said they had 135,000 soldiers. So imagine being called to lead a war, lead a battle. You have 32,000, and your enemy has 135,000 or more. The odds are already against Gideon. Things are not looking good, but Gideon is faithful, and Gideon says yes. And then you would think what would precede his yes, and you would think in your life and my life what would precede our yes to God would be immediate breakthrough and an immediate miracle, but that's not what happened. That's where we pick up in chapter 7, verse 2, which is going to come up on the screen right now. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. What? God, I have 32,000. They have 135,000. What do you mean I have too many men? He says, no, I can't deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. And they would say, my own strength has saved me. Imagine Gideon's reaction to that. But it, it actually goes on and gets worse. Now, announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. Soldiers just turn back and leave. Leave to Mount Gilead. And what happens? 22,000 men leave. 32,000 minus 22,000, there's 10,000 left. And guess what? The Midians still have 135,000. The odds are getting worse even though Gideon is being more obedient. How is this the situation? How is this happening? Keep reading. The Lord said to Gideon in verse 4, Nope, still too many. God, still too many? And then the most bizarre test that I've never understood, God does. He says, take them down to the water. It's actually a river, historically. It's a river, a little different than here, though. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. Okay, take them there. 
If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So what does Gideon do? He's obedient. He, Gideon takes the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, listen closely now, this is, this is strange. Separate those who lap the water with their tongues, as dogs lap, from those who kneel down to drink. Separate them that way. Doesn't say anything more, just tells them that. That's strange. Imagine what Gideon's commanders and officers and lieutenants would be telling him. What? What in the world? That's strange, but Gideon is obedient, and he does it. And what happens? Verse 6, 300 of them drank from cupped hands. Pulled it up. Drank from cupped hands. 300 of them. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give you, the Midianites, into your hands. Let all the others go home. Do you understand how absolutely ridiculous this is? Like, this is life or death war. This is whether Israel continues to exist or not. God's chosen people. 32,000, down to 10,000, down to 300. And what does Gideon say? He says, yes. Verse 8, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300 who took over their provisions and trumpets from the other. Now... The army is 1% of its initial size. 300 is 1% of its initial size. And God says, okay, cool. This is now something I can work with. That's crazy. That's bizarre. What a ridiculous test based upon how they drink from a river. I know you're never going to drink those water bottles the same here at the river. You're going to (laughs) be conscious of how people are looking at you. What a bizarre test that he uses to reduce down to 300 people. But Gideon is obedient, and he says, okay, I've always thought this to be so strange. But I have learned something in my 33 years of life that God does absolutely nothing without a purpose. You might not know why he does it, why he allows it, but one day you will. He does absolutely nothing. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So I I, I wanted to study this and see why. I think what God is doing here is he is telling you and he's telling me how to get on his team. Because that 300 were used for a mighty, mighty victory that I'm going to tell you about later. This is him. This is God hand-picking and refining the ones he wants to use. And I don't know about you, but I want to be picked by him. Is there anyone else here tonight that wants to be picked by him and put on his team? Good. Then let's look at the things he does. Let's look at what God looks for when he assembles a team. Here's the first thing. He looks at who you do it for. When you do anything, he looks and sees who are you doing it for. Are you doing it for your own glory or are you doing it for his glory? That's the first test. It's the first test. How do we know that? Because verse 2 said, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian to you. You're going to claim all the fame and glory yourself and not give it to me. So that's how this whole refining process starts, is is what do you do things for? Do I do things for my glory so Ryan McVitie may be made known more or great or rich or famous, or do I do things for his glory? And guys, sometimes in life, I know some of you have experienced this, I have, God will strip things down to the very bare bones where you are on your knees and there is no other feasible way for it to happen than a miracle from God. Sometimes he will do that and it is painful and it is miserable and it is something that we hate, but sometimes he will do it. And you know why? Because if he doesn't, Ryan McVitie will find a way to rationalize it away as something else. 
right? Like the healing will come and I'll say it's just medicine. God had nothing to do with it. Or, or I'll do something great and I'll say it was because I had money. So I could do something great because I had money, right? You'll find a way to rationalize it away. And you know why you do that in human nature? Because when someone does something for you, you feel indebted to them. You ever given a great gift to someone and they just turn their nose at it and walk away or barely give you a thank you or walk all over you after and treat you worse than when you gave a gift to them? Anyone ever had that happen? Y'all just got perfect friends because I've had that happen. I need to hang out with you more. It's because they don't want to feel indebted to you. If I accept this and if I show thanksgiving for this and if I give you praise for you doing this nice thing for me that I'm going to in here feel indebted to you. And so is it the same that if, if we give God the glory, then all of a sudden now we got to obey him and we got to honor him. So, so what, just like the Israelites, right? In verse two, they'll, if, if we do it with this many men, they'll claim the glory for themselves. So he strips it down to 10,000 men and now announces to the army that anyone who trembles in fear may turn back and go. Now, there's this thing in the military called desertion, deserting an army. And it has been the same law now as it's always been. If you leave your battle post, what happens? You're usually executed, right? Because people are going to die if you abrogate your responsibilities, right? Desertion is a thing. But God says, no, if they want to go, they may turn back and go. No penalty, no jail time. They can just go. What is this telling us about how God assembles a team? He is looking for people that don't do it out of obligation, but do it from the heart. See, some of us have been serving God for all the wrong reasons. Because mama makes us do it. Because dad expects it of me. Some of us have been doing it for all the wrong reasons. But God doesn't want your obligation. He wants your heart. When he designed you in the garden, he could have made it so that you couldn't sin. So that literally all you could do would, is worship him. And evil wouldn't even exist. Think about that. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He could have done that. But he didn't. He allowed there to be a serpent. He allowed there to be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave you a choice. You know why he gave you a choice? Because he didn't want you to love him out of obligation. He wanted you to love him from your, from your heart. So when you sang that song, it wasn't just another worship song. That's the Bible. That's what God has always wanted is your heart. So when he looks to put together his team, he looks for people who have heart. What is the best compliment that a sports team can get? That team plays with heart, man. What's the worst thing? Yeah, that team is talented, but they don't have any heart. They're a bunch of superstars, but they don't win anything because they don't play with any heart. When God is putting together a team for a W, for a win, he's looking for people that do it from the heart, not from obligation. That verse also teaches us one more thing that I think is so important. We're almost getting back to worship now. It teaches us another thing. It teaches us about fear. Verse 3 said, those who tremble in fear can go. There are stages and levels to fear. I have a fear of spiders. I do. I don't like them. I hate them. If you like spiders, I really think you're weird, honestly. I don't like them, okay? But I don't tremble when I see one. Trembling is the ultimate stage of fear. When you get to the point that you are trembling in fear, let me tell you what is happening. You are being controlled by fear. Fear is no longer informing you like it was designed to do. It's controlling you. Fear is not inherently a bad thing. If I put my leg over here, I feel fear because it's programmed in me that gravity hurts, right? 
God programs that in my body. Fear informing you is a good thing, but when fear gets to a point that it is in the driver's seat of your life, that's not the type of teammates that God wants to use. God didn't design you to have your life controlled by fear. He gives us grace for fear, and if you read the rest of Judges, I hope you do, Gideon actually is terrified. And time and time again, he makes a way. He says, you can take your servant with you. You can do this. I'll give you another miracle. He makes space for Gideon's fear. He doesn't just dismiss him out of hand, but fear was never meant to control you. He has grace for it. It's human nature when you're scared of something to think that you can't do it. But that wife that I was hard on just a minute ago over here, she taught me a lesson. She always says, it's like her number one saying, when I go to her and I tell her that I'm scared of something, like I'm scared that we're going to run out of seats today and there'll be people sitting on the walls. That actually, sorry guys. Um, When I tell her that I'm scared of something, you want to know what she says to me that is so simple and so brilliant? She says, okay, do it scared. Do it scared. Since when was being scared an excuse not to do something for God? There's so much wisdom in that. But it's like we feel like if we have fear, we, we, that, that's an indicator not to do it. You will do nothing great in your life that you are not scared of. Nothing. Everything great is scary because there's a risk involved attached to it. There's a vulnerability attached to do it. Do it scared. God will make grace. If you are on his purpose, he will make a way for it. And what's crazy is that 22,000 leave. The majority now leave. Why? Because of fear. And I feel like the majority of us Christians today, the reason we're not on the team doing great, amazing things for God is mainly because of that reason, fear. But guys, if, if, if God has called you to it, I promise you he will make a way if you stay faithful to him. Your job is simple. My job is simple. It's obedience. His job is the outcome. So... God isn't looking for those who are controlled by fear. The last thing, the fourth thing, comes in such a strange way, verses 4 to 7 that I read to you, and I never really understood it. When when he says, with the 300 men that lapped the water, I will give you victory. I'm like, why would God care about the way that you drink water? Why? That's so dumb. But I realize there's a meaning to it, and it's incredible. And I'm just going to get real strange with you for a minute. Look, the ones, they're soldiers. They're at a battle camp. They're in a state of war, okay? This is the context. They're thirsty, all right? When you're at war, Israel is stinking hot. I have been there 26 times, a lot of times. It's very, very hot, okay? They're thirsty, and they get to go to a river and get to drink. And what do the majority, all of them except 300 do? Water, I can't believe it. Right down to it. And they just start drinking directly to their mouth. And you can hardly blame them. They're thirsty. They've been in the desert. They're at war. It's just, it's the normal reaction. But then there's 300 who do it a little different. There's 300 that keep their eyes up on the horizon because they're soldiers and they're in war. There's 300 who don't throw themselves down like dogs and stick their face in the water and drop their sword on the ground. There's 300 that kneel down on guard, on watch, and lap the water up to their mouth. 
there's a reason for everything that God does in your life, no matter how stinking strange it seems to you. This is how he does his final pick. He checks to see if, if, if you're doing it for him or you. He checks to see if you're doing it for, for your, from your heart or out of obligation. He checks to see if, if fear controls you. And then he wants to make sure that even in thirsty seasons of your life, that has a whole other meaning in 2023. Thirsty seasons of your life, especially the 2023 meeting. Even in those seasons, he wants to use the ones that are still on guard, that are still looking at the horizon. Look at this. He wants to use the ones that are still available for his purpose, even when they're thirsty. That's what he wants when he puts his team together. So if you want to win this year, it's not about the player is about the team. And let me tell you one last thing before we go back to worship. When you throw yourself down because you're thirsty, and when you drop your guard, you know what a soldier is doing? He's dropping his sword. He's letting the sword out of his hands. I told you I've been to Israel a whole bunch of times, right? There's something still to this day that I observed when I was there. They have conscription, mandatory military service, because they're in a constant state of war. If you're an active duty soldier, you are required to wear your rifle, an M4 to be specific, on your body at all times. If you're home with your family, if you're sitting on the toilet, if you're sleeping at night, you're holding your rifle. That's the law in Israeli military. You know why? Because they're at a constant state of war, and they've got to be ready at any minute. So too was it with Gideon's men and God's test. And what he's telling you today from Judges 7, if you really look, what he's telling you today is that, yeah, Gideon's war was physical, but you also have a war that's spiritual, that is raging every single day, whether you like it or not. And he wants those who, just because they're thirsty, is not an excuse to put down their weapon. You know what your weapon is? Last thing I'm going to teach you. I might say that two or three more times. Who knows? You know what he's trying to teach you? that you need that weapon available and you need it in your hands. And if you are a believer in God, let me tell you what your weapon is. Ephesians six seventeen, the full armor of God, the apostle of Paul. He describes the different weapons. Wait, wait, here's what it is. Your number one weapon is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's your number one weapon. And for so long in my life, I would go through good seasons where I'm applying the word of God and I'm doing it. And then I'd go through a thirsty season where I would turn to the world. Because it's just so much easier to stick your head down in the water than to hold your weapon high and keep your eyes up on the horizon ready to fight at any moment. Your only defense is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Jesus Christ... When he was in the flesh here on earth, every single time that he was in isolation and Satan went to tempt him, he had the same beginning to his response to the devil. Do you know what it is? Somebody knows. He says, it is written. Every single time. Now, hold on a second. I don't know if you understand it. Why would the word in the flesh, which was Jesus Christ, who knows the word better than anyone, have to say to the devil, it is written, and then recite a law that he wrote? 
Why would he need to do that? Because like all things in Christ's life, he was teaching you and he was teaching me our only defense against the enemy is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And you can't put it down just because you're thirsty. You can't put it down just because it's a dry season. If you want to win and you want to be on the team, I'm so sorry. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about one thing and one thing alone. It's about being available for God to use you. That's what it's always been. And God takes Gideon's army and he refines it down to 1%. A refiner's fire. He refines it down to 1%. He says, good, I love it. This is how I can use it. And the 10-second summary of what happens, Gideon, by direction of God, he splits the, 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 the 300 special forces team into three units. And he goes to the camp where the 135,000 Midianites are parked. And God tells him, put 100 here, put 100 here, and put 100 here. And he says, don't take swords or spears. Take trumpets and giant jars. And at night, smash the jars and play the trumpets. You know what they were doing? They were worshiping at night. That was what they were doing when they went to battle. And the most crazy thing ever happens. The enemy wakes up. They come out of their tents. They look up to the hills, and they think they are surrounded by millions. And it's only 300. It's just 1%. And they get so terrified that they, in a frantic way, start stabbing and killing each other to escape. And God turns the enemy's swords against themselves and delivers complete and utter victory. Not because those 300 were great. They didn't do anything. They played a trumpet and broke some jars. They didn't even go to battle like that New England Patriot I told you about 33 minutes ago. With three rings on his finger. He didn't even go to battle, but he was on the right team. So I don't know about you, but in 2023, I'm going to stop making it about me. And I'm going to start making it about getting on his team. Because he can do so much more than Ryan McVitie can do. Stand up so I'll close or I'll keep preaching to you forever. Worship team, come up here. That's really rude. Worship team, would you please bring your trumpets and jars up to this stage and lead us in worship. That's more polite. Guys, look. I've talked to you for a long time. Thank you for listening to me. If the battle really belonged to you, I'm going to come out here with you. If the battle really belonged to you, if the battle was yours, you're 17 days into your New Year's resolutions in 2023, 17 days, and you're already stressed out and you're already freaking out and you've already broken a resolution, I bet, because I have. If the battle belonged to you, your anxiety would be justified. In fact, I think you should probably be more terrified. If the battle belonged to you. But the battle doesn't belong to you. The battle belongs to the team. And if Jesus Christ is on your team, I don't care how big the other players are. And I don't care how small you are. He can do it. And he will do it. And the most amazing thing is he will do it with the 1%. You live in the nation of Canada. I read a statistic three weeks ago while I was supposed to be relaxing over break and it broke my heart. You know what it said? It said 1% of this country is now Bible-believing Christians. 
people who believe that God created the heavens and the earth, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and save us from our sins and that he will return again one day. People like you and me. You're the 1% in this country. And about 1% of that 1% is in this room right now. That's crazy to think about. That's how few of us there are. But that's exactly how God likes it. So don't you tell me this country is too far gone and that we can't see revival in this nation. I know that it makes no sense because you're only 1%. But when it doesn't make sense, be on the lookout because that's when God makes it happen. Because now you and me, we can't take the glory anymore. We can only give it to him. So stop fighting to be a better player this year. The sermon is one sentence. Make yourself available to be used by him. That's all it's ever been about. 